have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, uh, open it uh, to Joshua chapter 2. We're going to be covering the entire chapter, even if we don't read the entire chapter, as will be the case with many of the chapters of the book of Joshua, as they will take an entire chapter to cover one full narrative. And we started our series through the book of Joshua two weeks ago, and we've made it through the first chapter at this point. We've seen that Moses, the leader of Israel, has died, and God has commanded his assistant Joshua to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And he's told them it's going to require effort. It's going to require that they really trust the promises because from a human perspective, think about this, it is a risky venture as there will be many that will seek to stand against the nation of Israel as they take the promised land. But the nation must trust God enough to still take the land. Today we're going to see and begin to understand the actual slot that Israel takes as they advance on the target of the promised land. And the first place that they're going to encounter on the other side of the Jordan River is the city of Jericho. And so they strategically send in chapter 2, uh, two spies in to see the city, to see its defenses, uh, understanding that they will try to stand against Israel. And in this first narrative, really, of Joshua, we're going to see God move in his power through the actions of human beings to deliver on his promises. And we see through that that it's going to take effort, strategy, risk from the human perspective again in response to understanding the moves of God in real time so that they can respond in faith. But we will see God continually deliver on his promises, even if it is in unexpected ways. Because no matter the risk according to the lens of the world, walking by faith is always the sure bet for your life. And I want to begin reading in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Number one this morning, understand that the first precept that we see here is that God will use the unexpected to further his plan. God will use the unexpected to further his plan. Right there in verse one, we see one interesting thing that I think challenges the misconception that many people have about faith in God and what it means. Walking in faith requires strategy. Walking in faith requires strategy. I believe that one of the largest misconceptions of how faith works is that the choices that you make are completely uninvolved in the life of faith. 
You think that somehow faith is somehow going to just work things out and no matter what choices you make, no matter what decisions happen in your life, no matter what actions you take, God is just going to deliver on his promises regardless of what you choose and what you do. And I think this is a great misconception. Many in the world think that faith is like a magic wand that is waved over areas of life to magically fix things without your actual involvement. There's nothing in scripture that would actually lead you to understand how faith works in your life that way. Make no mistake that it is God that moves and brings about his promises. But friends, your actions, though, are completely involved in the how of God's moves in your life. And I think verse 1 here gives us a great example of that reality because God had promised the land, but Joshua uses strategy to take it. He sends the spies. He wants to know about the defenses. He wants to know what's going on, especially in the city of Jericho. Friend, if you are not thinking through the steps of your life in living for the gospel, if you're not thinking through how it is that you're actually going to secure a future according to God's design, if you're not actually taking hold of the life and the lifestyle that God has commanded you towards, I want you to understand that you're not living by faith. Living by faith is not some thing where you just sit there and see God move in spite of the choices that you make. You're going to reap what you sow. God is gracious to forgive. God is gracious to give promises. But as you see through the nations of Israel, through the actions that Joshua takes, it is through the strategy that they're going to employ that God is actually going to use those strategies to deliver on his promises. Faith in Jesus especially begins a journey by which you actually grow through taking steps of faith that lead to a greater commitment to the precepts of God's word. It doesn't happen by accident. You're not going to drift into the promises of God. It's going to require effort. From a human perspective, it's going to require risk. And without forming a strategy for your life, then you are not becoming a disciple of Jesus. No matter how hard you try to make it happen with your mind. Friend, if your actions don't match the call of God in your life, then you're not going to advance on his promises. Look at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31. It says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And what I often see people do is they reduce that verse to the second phrase, totally ignoring the first phrase. We reduce it to the statement that the victory belongs to the Lord, thus kind of, kind of, kind of removing any responsibility that we have to ready the horses. Too often, many of you, Ask why you're not advancing, why you're not growing, why you're not feeling faith grow in your life. And it's because you've left the horse in the stall. You have to prepare the horse if you're going to receive the promise. The victory certainly belongs to the Lord, but he doesn't say don't prepare the horses for the battle. You're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to advance on it. The victory comes after the horses are made ready. And the difficulty with faith in Jesus Christ is so often we don't know when the battle is coming because God doesn't tell us, and he certainly doesn't frequently tell us. And so we prepare the horses, and we prepare the horses, and we prepare the horses, and sometimes you get tired of preparing the horses. And so your faith begins to slip. And you say, well, I guess 
Neither the battle nor the victory are ever coming. So you stop preparing the horses and then boom, the battle comes. And you are completely unprepared. I will tell you, many of you are struggling with the same temptations to sin that plagued you a decade ago. And the reason being because you have not formed a strategy for victory. Obedience to God isn't going to fall out of the sky. Obedience to God isn't going to happen in your life by accident. You have to form a strategy for obedience. You're going to have to remove some things from your life, and you're going to have to add some things from your life. But the problem is some of you aren't removing and you aren't adding, and you're like, well, I don't understand why God's not working. He's not working because you're not advancing on His calling. Victory over sin, yes, always comes from God. But the process of getting there involves great strategy to walk through this world with the wisdom of God. Because here's the deal. God doesn't always move the way that you expect Him to. Note, the king of Jericho viewed the Israelites as enemies. And the work of God through that nation of Israel was not unknown. God, though, works to keep the spies safe through an unexpected source. Certainly, at first view, I think sometimes we're a little numb to the story. Maybe you were raised in church and you heard this narrative in Sunday school so many times that you've forgotten the fact that we're dealing with a hooker. I mean, when you expect God delivering the promised land, you think it's going to happen through the purest of pure. You think it's going to happen through the holiest of the holy. You're thinking that they're going to walk into Mother Teresa's bedroom at this point, and at right now they're in a hotel with a prostitute. And God says, works for me. Friend, God always works through flawed people because there are only flawed people. If you struggle to reconcile the reality that God works through sinners in scriptures, you're never going to make it in this world. God is always going to work through the flawed because the flawed are the only ones that exist. Outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ, there are no perfect people. And so when you're confronted with these aspects in the narrative, don't worry. It's not the way that I would envision God working. I would envision God work. And as soon as the nation begins to advance, as soon as those spies go in, they immediately encounter a prostitute who's going to become the vessel through which God delivers the promise. And that's shocking. But I think it's shocking on purpose. Because, friends, you need to form a skill in your life of being able to sense a move of God through the power of the Spirit. Because there are numerous biblical examples of God working through unexpected situations and unexpected people to bring about His plan and His promise. And this is just one of them. God uses this situation not only to save the lives of the spies, but also to secure the redemption of Rahab and her family. That's fascinating. What an amazing turn of events. I mean, think about it. When I tell people that no one is out of reach of the grace of God, this is a great example of why I believe that. This is a great example of why I say that. Friends, God can use and save whoever he wants to. And he does. And so we must always keep that faith. But I do want you to note that I didn't say whoever we want or however we want him to. So often we use that kind of belief that no one is out of reach of the hand of God to kind of turn the situation into a self kind of serving prophecy where we excuse sin 
Or we use the idea that God will meet you exactly where you are to excuse yourself for staying there when God has called you to move. Note that the reason that God uses Rahab is, yes, she was flawed. Yes, she was in deep sin. Yes, she was disobedient to God. But it was because based on the information that she had about the moves of God through Israel, she makes a decision to turn her life towards the purposes of God. God doesn't go in her direction. She goes in God's direction. And that is what makes all the difference for your perspective in this narrative. God has not promised to bless your choices unless they align with his will and his glory. The life of Rahab the prostitute takes an incredible turn. I mean, think about the legacy that Rahab has. Some of you don't even know this, but in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it even records that the legacy of Rahab was found in the bloodline that led to the birth of Jesus Christ. But note who also was a result of Rahab's repentance from her life of sin here. She was the mother of Boaz from the book of Ruth. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, was Rahab's son. And so friends, when we look at the work of God through redemptive history, understand that God has a great history of turning sinful people into faithful people to serve His purposes for His glory. But it is always through the response of faith, of turning lives towards Him, rather than expecting God to meet our standards. God calls us to faith where we will align ourselves with His standards. But also I believe there's a very interesting situation that arises from the text. And it's a question that many don't cover. They just gloss over. And so I wanted to cover it. Was Rahab justified in her deception? Note that Rahab did deceive the guards. Some of you aren't ready for this conversation, but it's in the text. So that's your problem and not mine. I want to cover it. And since I'm up here, we're covering it. All right. God secures the salvation of the spies through the willful deception of Rahab. And so that begs the question, but isn't lying a sin? Well, of course it is. But according to common sense, there is deception that isn't always sinful. I believe that. Norm Geisler, a great apologist who's passed away, explained this situation by appealing to what he referred to in a, a term that he coined as the term that there is a rule of higher moral law. Consider those that hid Jews from the Nazis during World War II lying to the Nazi soldiers and detectives that would come searching out Jews. Were they in sin if they deceived the search parties seeking to kill innocent people? Now, you might say yes, and I would call you wrong. Why? Because at some point, everyone needs to hold in tension the reality of situational ethics. If you don't think situational ethics exist, well, then you're claiming you've never made a choice. You've never made a hard decision. Situational ethics is nothing more than applying ethics to any given situation. And in this situation, the reason that Norm Geisler, the apologist, says uh, that Rahab was not in sin is because she had a choice to make. She had to evaluate murder versus lying. And in this moment, if she tells the truth, well, she's going to feel responsible for the murder of the spies that she believes God is using to advance the kingdom of heaven. But if she deceives them, it's a lower moral problem than murder is. 
And so, yes, did Rahab deceive those guards? Absolutely. Do I think that she was in sin for doing so? No. I would say that Rahab did the right thing. I believe that is why Scripture presents this in a positive light, as though she pursued righteousness through this deception, because she did. Let the hearer understand. I know that there are 10 people that weren't ready for that conversation, and now you're going to go through your life lying, pointing to this moment as the justification for every stupid and foolish lie that you're about to tell. And I'll tell you, it's not my fault, even though I know you're going to walk out of here blaming me. That's on you because you were too foolish to understand the wisdom of God. Number two this morning, faith is a response to God's movement. Faith is a response to God's movement. I love the way that Rahab actually responds to the spies in verse 8. I want to read all the way through to verse 13. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Remember, they're hidden in the flax. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will do kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Faith is a response to God's movement. Maybe you have heard it said that faith is a leap into the dark. No, faith, friends, is not a leap into the dark. That's foolishness. R.C. Sproul used to say faith is actually a leap out of the darkness and into the light. That is what Rahab is evidencing here due to her reasoning for putting her faith in the God of Israel. Her statement and request reveal faith in a God whose moves she has actually seen and heard about in history. She knows that God has given them the land. She knows that because of how God has moved on behalf of Israel, the way that some people treat faith, though, even beyond thinking that it is a force-like belief that just makes things happen out of the air, Understand, friends, that's foolish. I've heard it said, and I heard it said many times by many Baptist preachers growing up. They'll say, faith is believing something that isn't so is so, so that it becomes so. And what I say is, that's dumb. That doesn't even begin to make any sense. Your faith is not going to give you the ability to ex nihilo create something out of nothing. Faith is rooted in objective reality. And that's what Rahab reveals. She gives this kind of long mantra saying, this is what I know that God has done. This is what we've heard about. We've seen God actually move to the nation of Israel. We know what God is capable of. And I want to believe in that God. Friends, that's exactly what your faith in the gospel is. Your faith in Jesus is not disconnected from the reality of Jesus. The reason that I came to faith in Jesus Christ as a young man was because someone told me, 
This narrative history of a God who loved me to the extent that even though I was a sinner, in real time, he sent his son to live the perfect life that I am incapable of living. And then Jesus died on the cross to give me forgiveness of sin. And then he rose physically from the dead in order to give me a new life so that I could go into the kingdom of heaven after my death and I wouldn't have to burn in hell for my sin forever. And I said, well, I think that's true. And that sounds pretty good. Can I have that? Is that not what Rahab says here? Note that Rahab does not disconnect the history of God from the promises of God. Rahab basically says, I've heard all about the moves of God so much so that we are afraid of the people that God has sent. And then she asks an important question. She says, will God move for me? Will that same God that I've heard all of these tales about, will he save me? Will he deliver me? Does he love my family? Can he work on my behalf? If I follow him, is there redemption available for me is Rahab's question. And is that not the question of every sinner that comes to faith in Jesus Christ? Does Jesus have enough forgiveness left for me? Will Jesus redeem me from my sin? Will Jesus take me into his kingdom for all eternity, sparing me from the wrath of God in hell? And so what you are seeing in this moment is, in a very real sense, is Rahab's born-again moment, where she's coming to faith in the God of Israel, giving everything that she knows about herself to everything that she knows about God at that point in time. Friend, even when you ground your faith in God, though, it's not simply a belief that he is there and he will work. Note that she goes through the fact that God has given specific actions and revelations throughout history of redemption for faith to be grounded in real events and real testaments. This, of course, is the role of Scripture in the life of the believer. Friend, if you want to know how God moves and what promises he has made, then Scripture is the source from which you will derive it. And that's exactly what Rahab did. Word had spread. Now, I want you to notice the juxtaposition between responses to the work of God that's in this narrative. Take first the reaction of the king of Jericho. He knew as much, if not probably more, about the works of God on this earth than Rahab knew. But what was his response? All right, we got to do everything in our power to stop it. We have to rebel against that God or we're going to fall under the judgment of that God. And so he foolishly begins to form his defenses against the God who saves. But then note Rahab's response. And I love this because this is the response of faith. This is the response of humility. This is the response of confession and repentance. This God, she says, our hearts have melted. In other words, in the original language, what's that mean? what that means is we're pretty scared. We know that even if we put up a fight, there's nothing that we can do to stop you because the God of Israel is the powerful God. But then she doesn't say, I got to do something to save myself. What she does is she throws her life at the mercy of a powerful God and says, can you save me? Can I be a part of your promise? Will this God move in my life as he is moving in Israel? 
Sinner, if you are in here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, the answer is yes. The same God that saved Steve Gentry has the power and the love to save you from your sin if you just give him your life. Stop fighting against God. You will never win, but he has grace sufficient for all of your sin. And that's why I believe faith is ultimately reasonable. Scripture, as we talked about last week in Hebrews chapter 11, refers to faith as the substance of things unseen. This is not the same as saying that it is a leap into the dark. What it is saying is it has a foundation of what God has done in the past. So we have some, some basis for trusting that he can and will work in the future. And that foundation, of course, is everything that he has done in Scripture. But friends, it's also everything that I've seen him do in my life. But do not, as many do, ground your faith in that which is unreasonable. One such thing is to believe God for something that there is no grounding in his moves throughout history of his people to believe. Just because you want God to do something is not a guarantee that he will. So if the foundation of your faith is that you want God to do something in your life, that you have no basis from what he has revealed in redemptive history to do, friend, you will be disappointed with God. And I've seen so many people do that. Whether it be financial, whether it be physical, whether it be mental, whether it be some material blessing under the sun, don't hold God accountable for something that he hasn't promised. Rather, anchor your faith to what God has done and what God has promised. Also, do not fall for the trap of expecting God to do the same things in the same ways all the time. Yes, there are promises that God made to Israel that he has not made to you. Therefore, the answer in discipleship then is, of course, grow in wisdom of trusting God for what he has promised through the gospel, but also grow in your ability to apply it to real life situations. That's something that's profoundly lacking in many people's discipleship. But understand, faith and reason are not enemies because both faith and reason flow from the hand of the same God. Furthermore, do not limit God to that which you believe is reasonable. Ephesians chapter 3 notes that God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or have an expectation for. And there is a great freedom in God being God. I ask God to do things for me all the time that he hasn't promised to do. The difference is I haven't anchored my faith to that. I've anchored my faith to what God has revealed in Scripture. Just like Rahab says, he moved on behalf of Israel to lead them out of Egypt. They crossed through a great miracle on the Red Sea. And I believe that God has done all that. And I believe, based on the testimony of Scripture, that he did all that to ultimately lead to the redemption in the work and life of Jesus Christ through his perfect life, his sinless death, and his great resurrection. And because of that, I have all of these promises of God in my life. I have the promise of God that he has forgiven me of sin. I have promise of God that he has restored me to a right relationship with God. I have the promise of God that Jesus has given me a purpose through his gospel by which if I will align my life with his mission through everything that I have, stewarding all of the great gifts that he has given me, that he will actually use me to proclaim his gospel into the lives of people who don't believe in Jesus. And man, what an amazing benefit that I've had in my life. I've seen so many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
And I take hold of every one of those promises. And I believe absolutely 100% without a shadow of a doubt that there will come a day, either at his second coming or my death, I will be in the presence of God in his kingdom forever seeing him face to face. I believe it as much as I believe that I'm standing here in front of you, friend. But the fact of the matter is, is I take those promises and I say, Lord, I know you can heal, but I pray that you will. Lord, I know you can provide, but I pray that you will. Lord, I know you can guide me, but I pray that you will. Lord, I know there's a parking spot, but I pray that you'll open it up. If you've never done that, I don't know if you're a Christian, friend. I've been in parking lots and despaired for my very soul. I've said, God, I need you to park the Fords and present me a spot. But here's the deal. If that's the basis of my faith, I'm going to walk through this world very disappointed. Because ultimately, God is wiser than I am. God's more knowledgeable than I am. God is unlimited where I am limited. So those things, I have to leave them for God to decide. Because if he was letting me make all of the decisions, I'll be honest, it would work out really, really well for me. It might not work out well for some of you, but I know it would work out pretty well for me, and that's why God hasn't left it up to me. He's perfect. I'm not. Friend, do not commit to a life of faith, though, when you've not considered the long road that you will walk down trusting God every step of the way. Because that's what God's going to call Rahab to do. God's going to call Rahab to really believe his promises every step of her life. Hebrews 11.31 actually notes that it was Rahab's faith that saved her family because she trusted God every step of the way. Even what we see about her legacy in Matthew 1 reveals a life that endured in faith. It says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. And I love that because what that's saying is Rahab was obedient. God brings judgment on the disobedient. But then it further says, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She was perceptive enough to see the hand of God move. And she responded in faith. Thirdly, this morning, understand that tests of faith reveal the validity of faith. It's tests of faith that reveal the validity of faith. Look in verse 14. It says, And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect of this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. 
And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then shall, excuse me, we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Friend, understand God will lead you to steps of obedience. God will lead you to steps of obedience. This narrative then shifts to what is obviously a command of God for Rahab to let them down by a rope. Because as she said, they were in the city wall. And then signify her faith by keeping that scarlet cord of rope out of her window until the nation of Israel comes to Jericho many days later. We know it's at least three because she told them to hide in the wilderness for three days. Then there had to be time for them to get back to the nation of Israel, give the report to Joshua. Then all Israel has to go into Jericho to march around it. We'll see that in Joshua chapter 6. But this seems like an odd request. That the scarlet cord that she was going to let down for them to go down to get out of the city wall, she needed to keep there. Think about that. Think about the risk she's taking. If you really think through this, what's happening in this is the, the spies tell her, you need to take a, t- take a step of faith. God is calling you into a circumstance where your life is going to be at risk because you're not going to pull that rope up. So when the guards return from chasing us, they're going to look on the city wall and they're going to see a rope hanging out of Rahab's window and they're going to know that you let us down by that rope, thus revealing that you deceived them when they were looking for us. They're looking to Rahab and they're saying, do you trust God enough to believe that God will spare you from their wrath? Do you trust God enough to keep that rope hanging out of your window? Does your family trust God enough to stay in your house and not leave, even though when the guards come knocking, they're going to execute every single one of you? One of you. They're asking, do you have enough trust in God to keep walking down the same road that you've already started walking with us? Because if you trust God, you believe God's going to spare you from what we're going to bring to Jericho in just a few days. Friends, this was a call of God in Rahab's life to take a step of faith to reveal whether or not she really did trust God. Interesting thing that God does is he never just calls you to one step of faith, does he? Sometimes in a moment I'll despair and I'll say, God, what more do you want of me? Haven't I showed enough faith? Haven't I done enough? And yet you're calling me to take another step. I mean, Rahab very well could have looked at them and said, what in the world? What a bum deal. I already hid you. What else do you people want from me? This is unreasonable. I've got to keep risking my neck for you guys. And they ask her, do you trust God? Friends, faith isn't in a moment. Faith is over a lifetime. 
A faith that endures through one situation and one circumstance is not a faith worth having. I need a faith that is going to last me the rest of my life into eternity. Therefore, God is going to call me to exercise that faith every day of my life. Friends, God will call you into situations and circumstances that you do not expect in order to test your faith. James chapter 1 puts it this way, starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That means that it is through trials that come into our lives that we were not expecting that God is teaching us things that will actually produce that very endurance of our faith that we would not have had absent those circumstances and situations. Friends, no one wants hard situations. No one wants those hard circumstances, but they're coming. If you're not facing an unexpected situation or circumstance in your life that, that you didn't want to come right now, understand, as I've said before, there's one waiting around the corner. You should get ready because it's going to happen. Actually, if somebody is the type of person that's like, I can't wait until bad things happen to me. Never trust that person. They're clinically insane. All right? So don't let them babysit your kids. Don't let them watch your house. Don't let them feed your dog, all right? Because those people are, let them feed your cat. But don't let them feed your dog. All right? That was for Pastor Nate. All right? But the text says something wild. It really deals with the issue of perspective. It says, count it all joy when trials of various kinds come into your life. And that sounds crazy. But what he means to say is he's going to qualify it on the back end when he says, because those very situations and circumstances are going to be difficult and you're going to look at them. You're going to say trials. Those are the very tools by which God is going to grow your faith, by which God is going to stretch your life, by which God is actually going to produce endurance for your faith so that you can have the type of faith that is going to last you the rest of your life. So I ask you, friends, do you face the unexpected with a lens of looking at how your faith is going to grow through it, or do you simply sit there feeling sorry for yourself? Do you wallow in self-pity on the day when the trial comes, or do you say, God, I don't want this, but I believe the promise that you will grow me through this? Every trial that comes into your life, friends, do you want a promise of God? Here's a promise of God. Every trial that he brings into the believer's life is going to grow your faith. I can't always tell you how. I can't always tell you why. But I can tell you the response of faith is to look at that God and not fall into the temptation to say, why me? How could you? How dare you? Why would you? Lord, I thought you were good. Lord, I thought this was going to go another way. Lord, I thought you were a good God who was never going to bring anything hard into my life. What in the world in Scripture would lead you to believe that God is not going to take you through valleys? He's going to. 
Instead, this takes real growth because this is the real stuff of life right here, friend. My prayer for you is that you will grow the faith that in the hardest moment of your life, because if it hasn't happened, it will. But I know for some of you, you've endured things I can't even imagine. I want to preface this with that because I see the faces and I know the stories. And I know you've been through things that I have not personally endured. And I know those are hard, hard moments. But friend, I tell you, when you grow your faith to the level where on that hard day, you can pray to God and say, Lord, what do you want to teach me through this? You will see your faith grow in unimaginable ways. And thereby, here's the deal, reverse engineer it. You will be able to count it all joy in ways you never knew possible. Because God wants your joy. It's only through living out your faith, friend, that you will ever know God. Because the God who brings you into the trial is also asking you questions through the trial. He's asking you the question, do you trust me enough? He's asking you the question, will you take that step of faith? He's asking you the question, will you allow God to stretch your faith. Will you do it? James 2.17 makes the statement that without works to show it, faith is dead. It says, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, saying it's worthless. But here's the cool thing about the book of James. I love it. Only a few verses later, in James chapter 2, verse 25, we read the example of Rahab the prostitute. It says, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and, that and is very important because receiving them wasn't the only step of faith, and sent them out by another way. Rahab had a faith that was alive. It was a redeeming faith. It was a saving faith. It was a faith that God used to save the nation of Israel by allowing those spies to return with a report that ultimately led to the downfall of Jericho. And so the question is, did Rahab trust God enough to keep trusting God? Would she commit to God over her wicked nation? Friend, what you often don't realize is that the very tests of faith that you might be despising right now will ultimately be used by God to reveal the validity of your faith. Will you endure in faith? Will you grow your faith? A few application points this morning. First, form strategies for growth in your life. I truly believe this is the fatal flaw of discipleship for so many people, is you are not forming a strategy for growth. You say you want to grow, you say you want to walk a path of repentance, but where's the strategy? Secondly, trust God when you encounter the unexpected, because you will. You will. And in those moments, you've got to trust Him. Thirdly, remember the actions of God to anchor your faith. There is an anchor of faith. And in hard times, when you're walking through a trial... You need those anchors. And friend, if you can't remember the anchors of how he's worked in your life, go to Scripture. It's the same God. And then finally, ask God to grow you 
when you encounter tests of faith. One difference between immaturity and maturity is that right there. When trials come, are you quick to despair? Or will you grow and chart a path of growth so that when the trial comes, instead of self-pity, you look to God and say, how will you grow me through this? 